0: your Bibles and turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. And I want to direct your attention to verse 31. John chapter 19. The Bible says in John 19, starting in verse 31, "...the Jews therefore, because it was the preparation, that bodies uh, should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was an high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers, and brake the legs of the first and of the other, which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side. And forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bare record. And his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they pierced. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him leave. And he came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about an hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus, and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, As the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulchre, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulchre was nigh at hand. We've been in this study through the Gospel of John for well over a year. I'm not sure how many messages exactly. I think we're Maybe at this point, but we are definitely nearing the end of the record of John concerning Jesus Christ and John's uh, point in all of his writing in this gospel is to highlight the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is God, God in the flesh. And John Uh, writes in a certain way, in a particular way, as to bring out and to highlight and to focus in on things concerning Jesus that that prove His deity. And we're going to see some of that again today here. But where we left off last week, we had just witnessed Jesus being crucified. And we read John's last recorded words of Jesus on the cross in verse 30. Where the Bible says, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The cry of Jesus, it is finished, was not a submissive cry, as in, uh, I'm defeated, as in, it's over, and giving up. But rather, it was actually a shout of victory, it is finished. In the Greek, Greek, it's expressed as just one word, and the word is tetalomai. and it and it it's used in the perfect tense. And when Jesus said it is finished, he used it in the perfect tense, certainly, which means it is finished and it will always be finished. There's never a time when it won't be finished. And what? Jesus was saying and what he was proclaiming. And we could ask the question, well, what did he finish? Uh, we, could, we could say he finished a lot of things. He finished the, the, the law of God. The Old Testament types and the Old Testament figures were finished. Uh, the, and we'll read it, and take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 10, and I'll get there in just a second. But in Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about um, uh, the... the the blood of bulls and of goats and the the Old Testament types and the figures that could never, ever take away sin. But Jesus, who offered himself a sacrifice, took away sin forever. That's what it'll say, and we'll look at that in just a second. But he finished the prophecies concerning the Messiah, uh, and, and ultimately what he finished was a complete payment for sin. Not just a covering, not just a rolling over, but a taking away of the sin of the world. In Hebrews 10, I probably should have turned there myself. Hebrews 10, and look at verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standing daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. He's talking, they're talking about the Old Testament, uh, the Jewish Old Testament system, and how the high priest would offer a sacrifice for the people even once a year. And these sacrifices in the the Old Testament types, they, they could never ever take away sin. But then verse 12, but this man. After he offered one sacrifice for sins forever sat down on the right hand of God. What did Jesus finish? <laughs> he said it is finished. It's finished. It will always be finished. Well, he finished a lot of things, but ultimately the complete payment for sin, not just a covering, not just a rolling over. The word atonement is an Old Testament word and it means a covering. But this man forever took away sin. And that's what Jesus finished. And we sing a song in our hymnal. Lift it up, was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. His cry of victory came because he had done it all. He had become sin." For you and me, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he, God, hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He became a curse so that we might never know the horror of separation from God. And I'm going to say something that might shock you momentarily or might cause you to ponder something momentarily. But there's an application here in this. Not even the most awful man who has ever lived has known complete separation from God while he's in this world. You say, why do you say that, Pastor? Aren't we born separated from God already? Yes, we are. Spiritually, we are. Certainly. However, when we are alive, God is still merciful and God is still gracious, even to the most sinful of men. In fact, He gives, him every, number one, but he gives him every man an opportunity to be reconciled to God because of His grace and because of His mercy. But final rejection of God's offer of grace and mercy leads to no more mercy. It leads to no more grace. And what I'm saying is that Jesus experienced that awful and uh, full separation from God in our place. Once it was in the past though, Jesus cried out in triumph and in victory, it's finished. His finished work of redemption, and understand this, His finished work of redemption is the reason that we must come to Him empty-handed. Nothing in my hands I bring. I don't have anything to offer Him. I don't have anything good in me to give Him. To think that we could commend ourselves to God with some work or ability of our own, is to commit the infinite insult to God. Jesus said, it's finished. He's paid the penalty for my sin. There's nothing I could do. There's nothing left to do. And to somehow think that I could commend myself to God because of some goodness in me is an insult to God. And we've got to come to God like the thief who hung next to him on the cross. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's where we left off in this passage where Jesus said it's finished. The payment for our sin has been made and the Bible says He bowed His head and gave up the ghost. And what we find in that is that Jesus Christ was in full control Of the very moment that he died and what we're going to see in our passage this morning is that jesus christ was also in full control of his burial and he's going to be in full control of his resurrection he's god and john is highlighting the deity of jesus christ and now that the agonies of the cross have ended for jesus he's endured the suffering of the cross. He's borne our sin. He's faced the righteous judgment of God for sin. After declaring the work of redemption finished, Jesus laid down his life willingly, giving up the ghost, and he breathed his last breath. And just as he was in control of his death, we're going to find that he was in control of his burial, and he's in control of his resurrection. Jesus is the death conqueror. Amen. And so these verses that we read this morning reveal the events surrounding the removal of Jesus from the cross. They reveal the burial in the borrowed tomb, and we're going to discover as we walk through this passage the continued animosity of the Jewish elite and the Roman soldiers, and we're going to also see the tender compassion of two faithful followers of Jesus Christ, and We're going to make some applications along the way as well for us. But this passage deals with the finality of Jesus' death and His commitment to fulfilling the will of God in the plan of redemption for mankind. Even though the story itself and the events we're talking about here seem tragic, I'm very thankful that it's not the end of the story. Amen? The next chapter happens... And Sunday morning is a brand new day. A new day is coming. And so we're going to look at that another time. But let's be thankful again this morning that Jesus Christ, there was never a time when He was not in control because He's God. So let's take a few minutes and look on these events as we conclude our study on the last hours of Jesus' life. And let's let the Word of God minister to us today, okay? Let's pray. Father, I ask for Your help today. Lord, we need You always. Uh, We can't do anything without Christ. and uh, Lord, we pray that Your Spirit would give us understanding of Your Word. And and Lord, that Your Word would accomplish the purpose that You've designed for it today. And we give You the praise and the glory and the honor for all things. And Lord, we ask for Your help in all things as well. In Jesus' name, Amen. First thing I want you to notice is the activity around the cross. In verse 31, the Bible says, "...the Jews therefore, because it was the preparation, excuse me, because it was the preparation, that the bodies should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers, and brake the legs of the first and of the other that were... Uh, which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it, that's John, bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe." For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Here we see the activity around the cross. And following the death of Jesus Christ, there was was a flurry of activity around the cross. First of all, notice the activity of the Sanhedrin in verse 31. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was a high day. Besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now bear in mind that John is speaking of the Jewish leadership here, probably the Sanhedrin. These events that are taking place here happened on a Wednesday, a Wednesday night, the day prior to the Sabbath, and you say, well, the Sabbath day is Saturday, isn't it? Yes, the, the weekly Sabbath is Saturday, but this was, there was two Sabbaths that week. This is a special day. and you notice that the Bible says that it's the day of preparation. for the Sabbath day was an high day. It was a special day. It was a holy day. There were two Sabbaths that week. and this was the Sabbath uh, uh, or the day of preparation for the Passover. The Passover was in remembrance of the Passover lamb that was slain just prior to the nation of Israel or the Hebrew people leaving Egypt. And you'll recall that that it was required that the blood of that lamb that was slain on that first Passover was to be placed on the doorposts and on the lintel of the house. And if they did that, it would prevent the death of the firstborn as the death angel made its way through the land. This was celebrated every year by the nation of Israel. This was a day of celebration, a day of rejoicing for the Jews. It was the day of preparation for the Passover. And these are these are the events that happened on a Wednesday. It was a special day. But, but the point that I want to make here to you is this. There's some irony here. Because the Jews are so particular, and the Jews are so... Uh, careful to say that the bodies of crucified ones couldn't hang on a tree, that it's the day of preparation and it can't be on the Passover. We've got to follow the law of God. That's what they're talking about. And the irony here is that the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God, who was offering himself as the sacrificial lamb who would fully and finally pay for the sin of man. The majority of the Jews rejected him, and they viewed him as an imposter. They viewed him as a blasphemer, and the reality was that he was a threat to their power. That's why they didn't like him. Here they had no problems at all with the illegal trial and consenting to the death of an innocent man, but they wanted to appear righteous in regard to the preparation of the passover for the religious elite it would have been unthinkable to allow such condemned men to remain on the cross during a holy day a holy time of course that was in relation to old testament law deuteronomy 21 23 says his body shall not remain all night upon the tree But thou shalt in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. They would have known that. That's what they were looking for. And so the Sanhedrin, they besought Pilate to have the legs of these condemned men broken, these who were crucified. And the reason for that is because it would hasten their death. Many people crucified would last two or three days, but they didn't have that kind of time. It was the day of preparation. This needs to happen now. We've got to get him down. We've got to bury him because it's a holy day tomorrow. We've got to keep the law. But they had no problems consenting to the death of an innocent man. What hypocrites. So they besought Pilate to break their legs, to hasten their death. And I won't get into all the details of this graphically, but basically breaking their legs would cause them to be unable to push themselves up to be able to catch air so they could breathe. And their broken legs would cause them to slump and sink and eventually they would suffocate and die. But these self-righteous men thought that they had God's approval, but they couldn't see their own spiritual condition. Pharisees are always like that, though. Pharisees are the, the type that will cloak things in spiritual talk and spiritual lingo, and they'll cloak things in something that looks good and sounds good, but they can't even see their own condition and see their own heart. But the Lord saw right through it. That was the reason that even John the Baptist said, bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. Show it. Prove it with your life that you've truly been born again. Don't just say spiritual words. Show it with your life. That's how Pharisees are. And so they said to Pilate, they wanted their legs broken so they could get him down off the cross because it was the day of preparation. But then we see the activity of the soldiers in verse 32. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which were crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith came there out blood and water. And so... "...the Pharisees went to Pilate, they asked for this to happen, and true to his nature, desiring to please the Jews, Pilate consented to their demands and ordered the soldiers to break the legs of those that were crucified." That was typically done with a large mallet, and it would literally shatter their bones. "...the soldiers, the Bible says, broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus, but when they came to the Lord they discover that he was already dead and saw no need to break his legs. However, apparently in an effort to ensure that Jesus was dead, a soldier pierced his side, and the Bible says there flowed out blood and water. Now that statement, there flowed out blood and water, has created a lot of debate over the years. And many argue that the flow of blood and water pointed to a ruptured heart and the idea is as they say Jesus died of a broken heart. That that might be true. I'm not going to get into the scientific aspects of all of those things. For me, that kind of a debate is not really what's important. What's important is that he willingly laid down his life for the sin of humanity. He suffered in agony upon the cross, bearing the sin and the judgment of God. He wasn't murdered by the Romans in this sense, that he had no power. He chose the moment of his death and was in complete control of that moment, fulfilling the will of God. And further proof of that is found in the next verses. Look at verse 35. And he that saw it bear record. This is John talking about himself. John was there watching this. And his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture saith that they shall look on him whom they pierced. Verse 36 tells us, And again, we discover that the events of the crucifixion went entirely according to the plan of God. Verse 36 says, These things were done that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of Him shall not be broken. Jesus had already died. And so there was no need to break His legs, according to the soldiers. The soldiers didn't know this, But their restraint in breaking his legs was actually a fulfillment of Scripture. God was in complete control. Exodus 12 and verse 46 says, In one house shall it be eaten. Thou shalt not carry forth uh, aught of the flesh abroad out of the house, neither shall ye break a bone thereof. That is referring to the Passover lamb. That was to be eaten prior to the exodus. Jesus became the ultimate Passover lamb. Amen. Psalm 34 in verse 20 says, He keepeth all his bones. Not one of them is broken. This was according to the will and the plan of God centuries before. Verse 37, And again another scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they pierced. The piercing of Jesus' side was a a partial fulfillment of prophecy. Zechariah 12 and verse 10 is the prophecy, and the Bible says, I will pour out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. That prophecy is speaking of the piercing of Jesus' side and those who were there that day to witness it. But it also speaks of a time yet in the future when a repentant Israel will be gathered in the end times and look upon Jesus, the one that they pierced. And the point of all of that is this, is saying this, that the Lord was in complete control of all the things surrounding His death and his, eventually his burial. We see that there was never a time that Jesus was not in control. And we see that same truth when it came to the, to the time for him to be buried. Not only his death, but all the events of even him being taken off the cross and preparing him for burial. Look in verse 38. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave. He came, therefore, and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices, as the manner of the Jews is to bury now in the place where He was crucified, there was a garden, in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they, Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. We see that these verses reveal the events surrounding the burial of our Lord following His death on the cross. And just as He was in control of the time that He died, Just as he was in control of of what happened while he was hanging on the cross after his death, he was equally in control of his burial as well. Notice the participants first in verse 38 and 39. Verse 38 says that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but he was a secret disciple because he was afraid of the Jews. Verse 39 says that Nicodemus came also the one who came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3. These are the the participants. John speaks of the men who took the body of Jesus and buried him in the tomb, but he doesn't tell us a lot about them. Other Gospels do. Joseph of Arimathea was the one who went to Pilate and received authority to remove Jesus' body, to place him in the grave. Most agree that Joseph would have been a member of the Sanhedrin as well. Matthew describes him as a rich man. Mark refers to Joseph as an honorable counselor who waited on the kingdom of God. Luke refers to Joseph as a counselor who was a good and just man. Joseph was apparently a secret disciple of Christ because John says that he was a disciple but secretly for fear of the Jews. Accompanying Joseph was Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night. This is the same one that spoke to Jesus regarding salvation in John 3 where Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He was also a follower of Jesus Christ, but he wasn't willing to make a public display of his faith. We remember in John 12, turn back over to John chapter 12. In verse 42, John 12:42 says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. It's quite possible that at least at that time, Joseph, if he was part of the Sanhedrin, and certainly Nicodemus, who was a ruler in Israel, the Bible says, it's quite possible that they were lumped in into this category of those of the chief rulers who believed on him, but because of the fear of the Pharisees and being kicked out of the synagogue, they wouldn't confess him before men. These were the men, though, who were the ones who showed up to take Jesus down off of the cross. It wasn't the disciples of Christ. It wasn't the apostles. It wasn't the ones who walked with him for three and a half years. It wasn't the ones who who committed themselves to him and said, we'll even die with you, Lord. It wasn't them! It was these two. Who initially, because of the fear of men, did not confess him. Some think that Nicodemus would have belonged to the Sanhedrin as well since he's referred to as a ruler of the Jews. These men were both men of means and both men of influence. Both men who had position in the eyes of others. But it's interesting to note this. The cross made the difference in the lives of these men. Prior to the crucifixion and sacrifice of Christ, these men were not willing to publicly identify with Him. But following His death, following His sacrifice, somehow, because of a work of God in their heart, their fear had been replaced with devotion and with commitment. But you know what? The same should be true of you and me. I believe it's impossible to experience the truth of the cross and have a life change and be still unwilling to identify with Jesus Christ in your life at some point. Galatians 6.14, Paul says, But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. A change of life because of a a, a miracle of God transforming you also changes our outlook, changes our perspective, and changes our convictions, changes our boldness. We're not going to consider it today, but in chapter 20, when Sunday came and Jesus rose from the grave, there was Mary Magdalene who was the first at the sepulchre. She was committed and devoted to Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ had completely changed her life. She was there when he was crucified. She was the first one at the sepulcher because she loved the Lord. Why did she love him so much? Because of all that he did for her. The same ought to be true of you and me. Our commitment and our devotion to Christ so often, friend, it's this. Our conviction and our commitment to Christ only goes so far as our convenience. What a shame. Notice the preparation, verse 39, the second part of verse 39. Nicodemus came, the Bible says, which at the first, came to Jesus by night. And here's what he did. He brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now again, remember, it's the day of preparation. There's not a lot of time left here because the new day starts at 6 p.m. and they're running out of time. And so they need to hurry to get the body of Jesus prepared and put in the tomb. And so they couldn't do a full job that they wanted to do. They couldn't do the full process, but they wanted to make sure that they did what they could. And the Bible tells us that Nicodemus met Joseph and and he brought spices weighing about 100 pounds. And it was customary for the Jews to do this But it was also something that reveals to us the devotion that he even had himself to Christ. It would have been very costly for Nicodemus to do this. The Bible says they wrapped Jesus' body in linen cloth and they applied the spices to anoint his body. It was similar to that which would be done for royalty Now, let me make this application, and I don't want to appear to over-spiritualize Scripture or anything like that, but there's certainly a lesson here to be learned for us. And the first is this. Number one, it was a shame for these men to be unwilling to publicly identify with Christ when he was alive. They didn't until after his death, but at least they did. Amen? His own disciples who walked with Him all those years, who believed in Him, they were nowhere to be found. And the point is this. The point in the application is this. As as believers in Christ, we need to be willing to embrace the cross, embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, regardless of what the world thinks. What is it that causes people to, to not give the gospel or be a witness for Jesus Christ? So many times, it's what other people will think. That is the reason. We're ashamed. We're afraid that we'll be mocked or looked down on or ridiculed or some other thing. But we should never be ashamed of the cross of Christ. If He's changed my life, I know what I was, I know what He saved me from. He's my Lord. And we ought not to care what the world thinks. The second is this, though. We find here that they spared no expense. He was willing to pay whatever price it cost him to follow Jesus at this point. The Bible says it was about a hundred pound weight. It would have been really costly for that. But their lives had been changed. They were willing to make whatever sacrifice was necessary to serve the Lord. And friend, we, have, we should develop the same kind of attitude as well. David said, to, David said I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And like I said, so often our commitment to Christ only goes as far as our convenience. It's going to inconvenience me to do this. If, if I've got the time, I'll, I'll, I'll fit the Lord in. I've got all these other plans going on and it's the Lord's day, but you know what? I'm really busy with these other things and so, well, I guess the Lord will find some, will find some other time for him another day rather than honoring him on the Lord's day. You understand what I'm saying? Convenience, so often is the factor and not devotion to Christ. Look at verse 41. You see the placement. Now in the place where He was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. There laid they Jesus, therefore, because of the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulcher was nigh at hand. Near to Calvary's hill was a sepulcher in which no man had ever been lain, the Bible says. It was a fresh, new grave. That, too, was a fulfillment of Scripture. Isaiah 53, in verse 9, says, "...and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth." Jesus had died. Jesus is now placed in a tomb. It's the low point of His humiliation. And yet, in all of that, Jesus was in control of all of these things. You can imagine the varying emotions going on with all the different people and all the different factors you can imagine how things might have went how certain people might have felt. One preacher said this, we can imagine how things probably went. Pilate went home to supper and to make a report to his wife of the day's events. Annas and Caiaphas, they the high priests presided at their respective Passover feasts. Peter probably wept alone. The body of Judas, the one who hanged himself, lay forgotten. John sought to comfort his new mother. The other disciples hid themselves from public eye. All their hopes and dreams shattered now that he was gone. Herod and his men of war probably mocked. Did Mary of Bethany have a sense of expectation in her heart? The Bible says that she pondered all of these things in her heart. Did a Roman soldier try on his new robe? And another try to wash the blood of the Son of God from his spear? The world spun round. Angels watched as some of their numbers went down to earth to prepare for the dawn of a new day. You can imagine the varying emotions going on in all of those things. And it seems to be final. It seems to be sad, it seems to be the end, the finality of death. Were this all that we had, we would yet be without hope. But the gospel that saves is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've really been challenged myself with the the weakness of my faith at times. And the times that I forget how powerful God is, the times I get discouraged or defeated, in labor, in work, in ministry, with people. And even like John the Baptist this morning in Sunday school, the issue was discouragement for him, but the solution was to remember again the power of Christ, the power of God. Jesus said, go back and tell John that the blind see and, and, and the, the lame are healed. Go back and tell him of the power of God and remember what the Lord has done. That's the thing that is the solution to my problem sometimes. To get back to the basics of who the Lord is. And I've been challenged with the weakness of my faith sometimes and forgetting the power of God. That Jesus Christ was in full control of every aspect from the moment he hung on the cross to the moment he died to the things that happened to his body. After he was dead, he was still in control. To the tomb that he was laid in. To the very moment. And as we study out the final hours of Jesus' life on this earth, we have to be reminded again, praise God for His power and that this isn't the end of the story. We'll consider this next time, but look at John 20 and verse 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark under the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Mary was the first to discover Jesus was no longer in the grave, that he rose triumphant in resurrection life, defeating sin, defeating death, defeating hell, doing exactly what he said he would do. Later that morning, he would appear to Mary in the garden, alive as well. He appeared to those who walked on the road to Emmaus, Uh, revealing truth to them, breaking bread with them. That evening, he would appear to his disciples behind closed doors. Eight days later, he would reappear to them, revealing himself to Thomas, who was doubting. Sometime later, he showed himself to Peter by the seashore. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that he was seen of above 500 people at once, alive. After that, he was seen of James. And of the apostles, and Paul said, He was seen of me also. The record proves that the grave wasn't the end. Jesus was seen by all of these following His glorious resurrection. Look in Acts chapter 1. He ascended back to His Father, where He's seated at the right hand, but He promised that He would return. The death and the burial was not the end. It wasn't final. In Acts nine or 1, in verse 9, the Bible says, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen Him go into heaven. Jesus promised in John 14 to His disciples, I will come again and receive you unto Myself that where I am, there ye may be also. What I'm saying is I'm very thankful that Jesus Christ was willing to endure the cross bearing our sin and shame while drinking the cup of the wrath of God for me. He purchased our redemption, provided the means of forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God. I'm so thankful for that, but I also am thankful and I also rejoice in the fact that the death and the grave were not the end. Amen. We've been forgiven of our sin, but you know what? Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we would have no hope of eternal life. That's why the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He had power over His dying, He had power over the treatment of His body after He was dead. He had power over His burial to fulfill prophecy. He'll have power over His resurrection. Truly, this is the Son of God. Amen? The question is this. Let me say this first. Because of all of that, we've been given the opportunity to respond to the gospel by faith. The question is this, have you responded? Have you confessed your sin to the Lord? Have you embraced His sacrifice for your sin by faith? If you're here today and you've never been saved, you need to be. You will not find hope and salvation in anything other than Jesus Christ and His shed blood. Look to Jesus. Respond to Him in faith and be saved if you're here today and you are saved thank him and rejoice over his sacrifice over the power that he exhibited amen to become the sons of god that kind of power amen let's pray heavenly father we thank you lord for your word and lord i do ask that you would use it and that is not a prayer That we just pray every Sunday by rote. It's a prayer of genuineness. Lord, would you use your word in our lives? And I pray for those who have never been saved. There are some in this room. Lord, would you bring them to the cross? Like the thief who died next to Jesus. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray.